welcome to another edition of Jumping Around, a steeplechase podcast from thisishorseracing.com. I'm your host, Joe Clancy, and boy, do we have a treat for you. Imagine sitting down to talk hockey with Bobby Orr, or baseball with Hank Aaron, or golf with Jack Nicklaus. It's winter, there's a fire in the fireplace, a couple of couches, literally walls full of trophies and stories to tell. Well, we went to the home of Hall of Fame trainer Jonathan Shepard in February and sat down for nearly two hours of conversation that spanned more than 50 years of a career unparalleled in American thoroughbred racing. Shepard came to the United States as a young man in 1961. All he wanted was some experience, a test of sorts, to see if a career as a trainer was really for him. He knew a job in his family's investment firm in London wouldn't suit. He liked horses, had ridden some point-to-points in England, but was prohibited from training in his home country because of his father's job as a racing official. An uncle suggested traveling to America. He probably figured Jonathan would be back in a year to take that investment job, and the rest is racing history. Jonathan Shepard's trainees have won more than 3,300 races, earned in excess of $86 million in purses, and won 11 Eclipse Awards. Shepard has won 25 National Steeplechase Association training titles by Races One and 28 by Money One. His top horses include Hall of Fame Steeplechasers Flatterer and Cafe Prince, Flat Champions Forever Together and Informed Decision, Grade One Turf Winner with Anticipation, and dozens more, including one of the breed's most influential stallions, Stormcat. And he's by no means finished. This time of year, Shepard's Pennsylvania farm hums with activity and a barn full of steeplechase veterans, flat horses, and youngsters just learning their first lessons. As usual, he took a small string to Gulfstream Park for the winter, and he's got a few maidens he likes for the coming jump season. So get ready for more winners. Before we get to it, special thanks for this episode goes to Charlie Fenwick. He said from the first day that we needed to talk to Jonathan Shepard. So here we are finally talking to Jonathan Shepard. So thanks to executive producer Charlie, the Temple Gwathmi Steeplechase Foundation, and sponsor Brown Advisory for making this happen, and to you for listening. So we're here in Jonathan Shepard's living room, and we can honestly say this is the best location for a jumping around podcast we've ever had. There's a fire in the fireplace, couches, and what seems like an endless assortment of trophies and memorabilia to admire. I know I've never seen eight Eclipse Awards all in one place. Jonathan, thanks for having us, and welcome to the show. Happy to be here. It's cold outside, so it's nice, and, <laughs> nice in the, inside of the log fire. Exactly. Uh, winter in Pennsylvania. We were just talking about a little bit off the air, a little bit about your background, and obviously there's some horse connection in England, but your first job was working in a family stockbroking office. That's about as far from a barn as you can get, right? That's correct. <laughs> I, I kind of grew up with ponies in a horsey atmosphere. My father was a racing official. I thought it'd be nice to be a trainer, but I didn't really have the wherewithal or any particular connections, besides the fact that at that time in England, immediate family members of racing officials were not allowed to train publicly. So uh, that wasn't really an option. And they found me a job in this family business on the stock exchange, where I dutifully went off and didn't really enjoy it and wasn't very good at it. And I had a little chat with one of my uncles, who was a partner in a firm, and he thought, well, maybe take a year off. We'll hold your spot for you if you're not longer than that and travel a little bit, see the world, and maybe you'll settle down and maybe you decide you don't want to do it. So with that, I ended up coming to the States and had some distant relatives up in Connecticut, and that was my landing point, so to speak. And how did you said it to me before? You came over on a cargo ship? I did. The um, A cousin of my father's had married a Norwegian, and they settled in Connecticut, and he owned a shipping line, Ness Shipping, N-A-E-S-S. He'd been married once previously and had a son called Michael, who was quite famous for marrying Diana Ross of the Supremes. <laughs> in any event, I stayed there, and I was planning on just sort of just really seeing the country working my way around and a few dollars in my pocket. And the first people I contacted, I thought, well, I'll start with horse people. 
I guess probably in those days I wrote, I can't quite remember how I contacted them. Anyway, a few days later of sending off these letters, I got a call from Mrs. Griswold, Ben and Jay's mother. She had just had a fall, hurt her back, was out of action for six to eight weeks, and it was just as the hunting season was just cupping was just starting, and they had a person that helped in the stables that exercised a little bit, but she always would ride with him. There were too many horses for one person to ride. She said, we need somebody bad to come on down. So I went down there, and they were very kind to me and enjoyed staying there and introduced me to lots of people in the area. And as the clock was kind of ticking out for getting back in the saddle, I explained that I really preferred to be with racehorses and hunters, and they, you know, gave me introductions to Sydney Waters and Smithwicks and various people in the area. Wow. Yeah, you couldn't ask for a better introduction, really. I mean, to the Maryland steeplechase and horse yeah. country, I mean, it couldn't have worked out any better. When would this have been? 61. 61, okay. I came over on, um, well, we were supposed to arrive. Turned out this boat I was coming and working my way over on had something wrong with the engine. It took two days longer and it was supposed to get here. So we were going to arrive on Labor Day and there was no one to unload it. So we basically just sunk anchor off the New York Harbor somewhere and waited till Tuesday. I was wow. glad to get off that boat. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, how long How long of a ride is that? It was about no 10 days. 10 days. I think, yeah, it was quite long enough. And when I, when I arrived, I went to these cousins, and this guy, uh, one of the sons, who was about my age, he said, I don't know if you're interested in baseball or not, but you know you should come to Yankee Stadium with me tomorrow night. We might see history being made. So I tagged along with him, anything about baseball. It was the day that Roger Maris broke Babe Rube's home run record. Wow. You were there? September 1961, I was there, yes. Wow. I've only seen one of the baseball game in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I fell asleep in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners out there. He did not appreciate the uh, the record of Roger Maris breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. It was 61 compared to 60 for the Babe. But uh, It was? Yeah. Oh, I said 60. It was, it? Yeah, it was 60. It was The record was 60. He hit 61. Oh, yeah. excuse me. I thought yeah, you were yeah. talking about 19. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. A little bit yeah, longer season. So, yeah, but, yes. you know, it had an asterisk. That's why. If it had been Babe Ruth, he'd have been much more interested. Yes. It would not have fallen asleep. <laughs> so then the connect the dots to racehorses would have been with the Griswolds, and you got to meet some of the trainers and people there. Yes, they were very kind to me. You took me in, and Ben and Jay were both away at Princeton, I think, at the time. I did a little bit of cubbing and helped exercise the horses, and they uh, introduced me to other racing people because I explained that's what I prefer to do but kind of struck out a little bit in that area and then eventually mrs griswold said you know there's a family called cox up in pennsylvania supposed to be very nice we don't really know them but i think jay's kind of got his eye on their daughter susan (laughs) (laughs) as it turned out i think amongst several others (laughs) so anyway through that connection i got an interview with the coxes and i he said come on up have sunday lunch put you on a couple of horses and have a talk so I go up there, and he puts me on two horses, and I fell off both of them. I thought, this isn't a very good start. <laughs> yeah, this is the farm of uh, the eventual Hall of Fame steeplechase trainer, Burley Cox, who would have been the top of the sort of top of the list then, I would think, in terms of stables to, to go to compared to Mikey Smithwick, or uh, maybe just below him. Yeah, just below. He was extremely successful as hunt meets, but not so much with the big races in right. New York and stuff, which Mikey was specialized in. But very nice family operation, wonderful people taught me in you know almost like another son but the first one i thought it was strange it's supposed to be a racehorse he had a big double bridle on we walk out to barn and i'm riding extremely short because i heard that's how americans i thought that was what you're supposed to do over here and the horse reared up and i fell backwards and with this big bridle in this i pulled him right over backwards on top of me but luckily neither of us were hurt so the rest of the ride went better and then susan that was hanging around the barn she said you know, we'll go and chop a few logs in the woods. Same thing, I'm riding with my stirrups under my chin. It turns out this horse isn't even a thoroughbred she's put me on. 
His name was Hazelhurst, or some little pet of hers. He was a half-brother or something. We got up in the woods, and he comes up to the first little dog. As we get closer, he gets slower and slower. Finally stops altogether, and the same thing went straight over his head. <laughs> <laughs> but he decided to take me on anyway. I think they had somebody there that wasn't working out well at all. He figured it might not be much, but maybe I'd be better than they were. I had a wonderful time. Spent the rest of my year with them, rode hunt meets and stuff, and had a couple of wins, including this spare mount I picked up on, uh, what did I say, on Sterling Square. And again, so this is 61, 62-ish? This would have been, that would have been 62, I think, yes. Okay. Yeah, because I went down, I started with Indus's ever getting ready to leave for Camden for the winter. Okay. And I went down there, and then it was that following spring, spring. when I was in 62, yes, that uh, was a spare mount that Joe Aitchison was asked to ride and turned down and put me in for the ride, and miraculously he won. I think the horse was a bit of an old dog, and he kind of, if you reached up and grabbed him and started riding like a jockey, which Joe would have done, he, he kind of pinned his ears and sucked me flopping around and halfway falling off most of the time. He, he kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> anyway, he won, and then they ran him back three weeks later at Aqueduct, and damn if he didn't win again. So that kind of got me off to a good start, and I think people thought maybe they were onto something, and I started getting quite a few outside rides, and they finally found out that actually I'm just like no better than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but that happens when some new guy comes on the scene and wins a couple of rides quickly. Still happens, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Of course, my ambition was always to train. Yeah, not necessarily make a career out of trying to be a no. jockey type of thing, yeah. I had a little bit of success to start with, as I mentioned, and I was thinking to myself, you know, a lot of these other jockeys that are ahead of me and the jockeys standing, so to speak, they're all like 10, 15 years older than me. If I stick around for a while, I might just inherit a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> well, five years later, I'd already retired and never still riding. <laughs> yeah, there was no vacuum. <laughs> Joe Atchison and Tommy Walsh and Patty Smithwick and, you know, some very good riders at that time. But it was fun to ride with them. At that time, Belmont was under construction. All the races were at Aqueduct. And they used to wind up the season in the fall with what they called a United Hunts Meet. And on, I think it was probably a Thursday and Friday. It could have been Wednesday and Thursday, I forget. Instead of having one race a day, they normally did. They had two hurdle races on the first day and then two brush races on the second day. And I got to ride in all four of them. Wow. Finished second in the turf riders on some long shot horse. So that was a bit of gas. Then... That was when I was here the first time, and I went back after the year was up. Yeah, so the stockbroker, they, they probably want you to come back to work by now, yes. and you got the horse stuff out of your system. and That's yeah. it, yeah. So I went back and uh, after a couple of months realized that it wasn't going to work out and said something to my uncle, and he didn't really try to talk me out of leaving. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had me there for a reason. It was called Shepherds and Company, and he was the only other shepherd in it. There were like 12 partners, and they wanted to groom some young person on to sort of keep the name going. Anyway, so I contacted the Coxes to see if they'd have me back, and they said they would. But they said they didn't need me until Saratoga. They wanted someone to take care of things on the farm, and they all went up there and had a good time at the spa. And this was like in March or something, so I had to fill in time, and I had a cheap old horse of my own. I ran a few times and picked up a few spare rides and just drove around, you know, riding out for different trainers and riding a few races here and there, point to points and a few under rules. And then I came back and worked for them. Not too long after that, I had a bad fall and ended up in hospital in Westchester. And Mrs. Cox used to come and visit me each day. I was in there for about five or six days. I had a brain, what do they call it? Not an aneurysm, it's in the heart. Something up in my brain anyway. And after the third day, she said, well, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to come back in tomorrow. But I'm sure Penny will be in. I'm thinking, Penny? Well, then I sort of noticed that she had, Penny had accompanied her. The Coxes and Loftings were, you know, best friend families at the time. So I'm thinking to myself, well, she's, actually, she's not bad looking. Maybe I'll take her out when I get out of this hospital. <laughs> sure enough, one thing led to another. And then we get married, so obviously I'm here to stay. And not too long after, I'm thinking to myself, well, 
you know, riding 30 to one shots, two or three a week's not really much of a way to provide for a, a wife and hopefully soon a family. It might be time to get started in the training. But I didn't have any real prospects as far as owners. Yeah, it's still, it wouldn't, it's not easy now to start in the training no. business. And even then it would have been the same thing. Where do, you, where do you begin? You need owners, but you need horses too. And I'm looking at these other people. There were a number of sort of young amateur types who very likely were going to go into training. For example, Billy Turner and Winky Cox himself. I figured they're all going to be training at some point and maybe I should kind of jump on the bandwagon before them. Well, I had a friend in England who was quite a successful businessman who came to stay in Saratoga for a few days. And I was actually working for Joe Nash. I'd stopped working for Burley and started working for Joe Nash, more as a, an assistant trainer rather than as... He only had two or three jumpers. And my friend, David Crosley Cook, his name was, I was talking to him about my predicament. I wanted to get into training. He said, well, you know what? Maybe you got the horses first and then only sell them to people who would leave them with you to train. That might be a better way of getting started. Well, that's a businessman. And he said, I'll tell you what, you come over, pick out five or six horses, not too expensive. We'll mark them up a little bit to make a profit but not be greedy. I'll put up the money and I'll pay expenses to get them to New York, to the airport, and then you're on your own with them. So I took them up and we picked out five or six horses. They were all pretty cheap and brought them back here. And I remember having dinner at Runnymede, Diana and Crompton and Bob. Penny and I were over there for dinner one night, and I said to Bob Crompton, you know, I've got these horses, and I'm looking for some owners. <laughs> he had horses. Yeah. But they had them with Charlie Cushman. And he said, well, I'm not sure my present trainer would be too happy if I had horses with another trainer. He said, I'll tell you what, my brother-in-law's coming up here in a couple of days for the weekend, and he might, I think he might be on the verge of maybe getting into the game, George Strawbridge. <laughs> So he said that he would bring him over the next morning. So he did. I guess he had dinner and spent the night up there and stuff. And he brought in Sally came over the next morning. Looked at the horses and they were sort of trying to decide. And they said, well, I'm pretty sure we'll get one. Oh, by the way, what are their names? And I said, well, this is kind of a plebeian name for a racehorse, but his name's George. <laughs> George. <laughs> I said, well, I think we'll take that one. Yeah. I mean, if I'd planned it, I no. just fell right into it. I never, <laughs> even, never even put the two and two together. Until they asked me what their names were. And then he got sort of intrigued by it, and they started coming up and riding out and stuff a little bit. And he took a liking to this other one. His name was Gatto. Okay. The horse George never did any good, but Gatto won 21 races. Yeah. And I think both Sally and George won amateur races on him themselves. He was like a really tough little hunt meat horse. Wasn't that great at the track because he was sort of small and handy and a quick jumper. He didn't quite have the class, real class, to run around Belmont or something, but he was awful tough around Middleburg and Radnor and places up and down the hills and around the barrels. The damn nice little horse. And I think that really got George really interested. Yeah, what a start. Yes. Yeah, you know, to, you could have easily bought five Georges who didn't do anything. <laughs> One of the horses of those six we brought over was bought by Phyllis Wyeth. Wow. I think she was Phyllis Mills at the time, yeah. I forget. Mrs. Lofting ended up buying one. Yeah. This one horse was extremely studdish. He was the only stud horse. The others were geldings. It was a broken light bulb in his store. I went in the store, put a chair once, and he backed into me, and it was like dynamite. He just started kicking the crap out of me. Jimmy Wyatt was working for me at the time. Any, any person I had working was me and him. Wow. Jimmy Wyatt is the father of Todd Wyatt, a trainer now. Wow. So he pulled me out of the store, and I used to stop in at Ida's, as we called it, at Lofting's, for a cup of tea when I finished in the barn. She loved hearing about the horses. She was really into it. And I told her this horse damn nearly killed me, but I said, I, I mean, he needs to be cut, but I'm trying to sell him. No one's going to buy a horse that's just being gelded and barely walk. So the next day she said, I'll tell you what, I'll buy half of them, and, you know, that would help. She bought half, and then she ended up buying the other half later, a little bit later on. So Strawbridge ended up buying two. 
Bob Crompton did buy one, a horse called Soham. But that was on his own as opposed to Diana with the right. Moffat. They were cheap horses. I mean, Gatto, I think it was 8500 I think we bought him for 1600 pounds. And believe it or not, it's kind of interesting, actually, we bought him from Charlie Weld, who was Dermot Weld's father. Wow. Dermot Weld's parents owned the horse. He was a trainer. At that time, Dermot was an amateur rider in vet school, I think. They also owned his mother, Gatto's mother, and they took her to Italy for some big steeplechase race. I'm not sure how she did. I think possibly she might have won, but anyway, she broke a bone in her foot during the race and was lame, and they said she couldn't be shipped for three, two or three months. So they thought, well, she's not going to race again anyway. She's got a broken bone in her foot. Maybe we'll just breed her while she's sitting around over there. We should come back and fall. They better into this horse called Jado. <laughs> and that's Gatto. And her name was Galerio, so they named her Gatto. Wow. And he had won five or six races, but they're all small little apprentice races and conditional races and stuff like that. That's why it wasn't expensive. But I took a liking to him. There was something very appealing about him. Dermot, of course, went on to great things. And he stopped in. He was going to, I think, spend a winter in California with Charlie Whittingham or somebody. And he stopped in for a couple of days here and rode out with us. And many years later... We were saddling horses for the turf stake at the Breeders' Cup in Chicago. It was at Arlington that year. And we were chatting, waiting for the ballots to come out with a tack. And there's a newspaper reporter there, and he said something like, I see you two know each other. And, and the Dermot says, oh, yes, Jonathan's the man who taught me everything I know. <laughs> he rode out one day. <laughs> but needless to say, the majority of them did fairly well, and one thing led to another. Just for some context, Shepard's small string of racehorses owned by early supporters Bob Crompton, Phyllis Mills, George Strawbridge's Augustine Stable, and the trainer's mother-in-law, Ida Lofting, set up shop at the Lofting family's farm just outside Unionville, Pennsylvania. Gatto was an early successful runner, winning all over the circuit, even with Strawbridge himself in the saddle. Shepard still pays credit to Ida Lofting's support, which came at an important time. Her barn and the surrounding land were the foundation on which to build a training business. The barn was empty. Jimmy Kerr, Ida's brother, was using it for fox hunting. He was field master. And he had a couple of friends from New York who would come down on weekends, and he bought a doe. In the meantime, he was fixing up the barn over, which is Buttonwood now, and he moved the horses over there, and this barn was sitting empty. So I rented that and put the horses in there. Wow. Yeah, and off and off it goes. <laughs> yes. You know. And then a couple of years later, George said, you know, I'll tell you what, might be a bit of fun to go to Saratoga and buy a couple of yearlings. He said, maybe I could spend about... 100,000. We ended up buying four, and they all did quite well. One of them was just sort of a cheaper horse, but it only cost $10,000 anyway. One was a filly, very nicely bred filly by First Landing, called First Approach, who became his foundation broodmare. And one was a horse called Northern Fling, who was a great stakesman and became a fairly successful regional stallion. That's only three, isn't it? Yeah. And the heck was the other one? Oh, Cafe Prince. He's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. That's pretty amazing. That's a pretty good yearling haul, yeah. Yes. On that path a little bit, you went to Saratoga to look at yearlings. I mean, would that have been something you'd done? Were you just looking at them yourself, or how much guidance or input did you try to get from other people? I guess I thought I knew. <laughs> I don't know why I would have <laughs> known, but we kind of looked at them together. Sure. And I would kind of scout them out, and then he'd come over, and you know, I'd say, well, I, I really particularly like these ones, and so on. And, and then he'd get his catalog out, and, oh, well, let's take a look at that one. <laughs> so anyway, we bought, we bought those four, and they're almost exactly 100000 I think. Wow. 
No, and from a he wasn't necessarily the first. Uh, I think Athenian Idol, Idol was your first steeplechase champion, but Cafe Prince was certainly first yes. really good horse. And for again, it's before this would have been seventy. He was champion in seventy seven and seventy eight. But when he gets started, you know what kind of horse was he starting out, and 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 how did he develop into the into the champion and eventual Hall of Famer? Well, I got to give Strawberry some credit for this. He said, "Why do you like him?" And I said, "I think he looks like a big raw bone." Sp- speed sprinter type. And he said, well, I'm sure you're probably right, but to me, he just looks like a nice old jumper. <laughs> I think he struggled to break his maiden on the flat. He was by Creme de la Creme, I don't even mm-hmm. remember him, who was sort of a miler type sire, I guess, really. By Olympia, I believe he was, who was a speed sire. Anyway, uh, that kind of got George pretty well hooked after that. Yeah, I would think. No, and on his Cafe Prince, he was my nemesis. He managed to ma- managed to beat my father's horses frequently, which was oh. like I'm, I was always rude against Cafe Prince. But anyway, <laughs> I, now I have perspective, and he was obviously a pretty nice horse. To yes. you know, on he obviously had some soundness issues, like a lot of them. But on his best days, he had to be very good, I would think. Oh yes, yeah, he should have won the Colonial Cup. Well, he won two, right? Dave Washer rode him once. Yes, right. he only won one, I think. Okay, but this other time, George had a horse. Was he trained by your father, or was it? No, I think it was Burnett Wilson. Did he fall at the first fence? Yes. That was my father's horse. It was? <laughs> Gula Gong or something? Uh, oh, oh, what a chief. Oh, oh what and a we chief, all yes. went, we, all, we took the whole family down. It was going to be this great big thing, and he was undefeated, and we were finally going to run against Cafe Prince. Well, we won on Wednesday at Rolling Rock. Cafe Prince won on Saturday, and then we had to not run against each other. And then finally, Colonial yes. Cup, they're going to run against each other. My dad's horse fell at the first fence. So, George... <laughs> came to me in the morning of the race and he said, you know, this oh, what a chief, he's, he's a confirmed front runner. And the one thing I don't want to do is see these two horses go out together and burn each other out on a head end. And Fishback liked to be up close, keep him handy if not on the lead or close to it. So I, when I told Jared, he's, Jesus, you want me to take that sucker back? I'll take him back. I mean, he was 20 lengths behind the next to last horse going to the first fence. In the meantime, their horse falls. <laughs> <laughs> and he made a run, I would say, from probably a mile and a quarter from home to the last fence, as fast as any horse has ever done in the history of the Colonial Cup. But he must have made up 30 or 40 lengths. But by the yeah. time he got to the last fence, he kind of flattened out. He wound up third, I think. Yep, third. And that and Grand Canyon won. I mean, he was chasing a pretty fair yeah. horse. You know, it wasn't like he but was... But I think yeah. with, with the proper, yeah. you know, yeah. generally being able to ride him the way he wanted to, most likely would have won. And he did. we got to set the record straight. He did win two Colonial Cups. He Dave did? Washer in 75. Yes. And then Fishback in 77. So, oh. uh, um, and then he got beat in 78. Okay. Yeah. But obviously, obviously a very nice horse. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and went to Saratoga and won. Went, he went everywhere and won. Yes. And you thought he was a sprinter, see? <laughs> <laughs> we skipped ahead a little bit there, but let's backtrack and try to put some of this in perspective. In 1971, Shepard and George Strawbridge went to the Phasic Tipton Yearling Sale at Saratoga and bought four yearlings, despite having little to no experience in that arena of thoroughbred racing. The purchases totaled about 100000 and included two-time champion steeplechaser and future Hall of Famer Cafe Prince. He was bred by Vern Winchell in California and a son of Creme de la Creme. He won 18 races, including two Colonial Cups, was champion in 1977 and 78, and joined the Hall of Fame in 1985. That's one. Next was multiple stakes winner and future regional stallion Northern Fling. He was by Northern Dancer, so had a little bit of promise, but, again, very savvy yearling buy. The third was a Virginia-bred filly by First Landing named Fast Approach. She never raced, but became Strawbridge's foundation broodmare as the dam of Grade 1 winner First Approach, who was by Northern Fling, Grade 2 winner Last Approach, and Grade 3 winner Summer Fling. 
Fast Approach's daughters produced the likes of Grade 2 winner Alice Springs, Top Steeplechaser Irish Approach, and Grade 3 winner Summer Ensign. More recently, Fast Approach's name can be seen in the pedigrees of Augustan Stakes Horses, Spring Quality, and Holiday Star. Before that trip to the Saratoga Sale, Shepard made a name for himself with a few other significant runners. In the summer of 1971, German-bred Wustenchef won four consecutive stakes, Delaware Park's Indian River over jumps and Sussex Turf Handicap on the flat, Aqueduct's Meadowbrook over jumps, and Belmont Park's Brighton Beach on the flat. Again, that's four consecutive stakes wins, two over jumps, two on the flat. Athenian Idol, purchased from a Harborview Farm dispersal for $2,000, became Shepard's first champion in 1973. And then there's the first one. Timber Horse Half a Day was the trainer's first official winner at My Lady's Manor in 1966 and won the Maryland Hunt Cup two years later. As is typical in racing, there's more to the story than wins. Well, I think one of the horses that helped me when I first started, because I trained a lot of timber horses originally, as Charlie would remember, being an amateur rider myself. And when I went into training, I was friends with a lot of other young amateurs from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and so on. And they used to ride, a lot of them are fairly cheap-type horses, because they were all young people, didn't have a whole lot of money to spend at that time. But they used to enjoy coming up here and uh, riding out, and would go fox hunting on Saturdays and stuff. And we had a great time, schooling cross-country, and Jay Grizzled, and Patty Nelson, and Charlie, and... You know, good old Paddy, he bought the horse for, as a fox hunter for his wife. The horse turned out to be half nuts. But rather than admit he would have made a mistake, he said, well, we'll make a timber horse. <laughs> <laughs> he was only 15, too. Wow. It was a miracle, really. Yeah, he won the Maryland Hunt Cup, yep. which a lot of people might not guess that Jonathan Shepard trained a Maryland Hunt Cup winner. You didn't run very many horses in it, I can tell. No. <laughs> we had pointer pointers and regular timber horses, and I think one year we had ten, and nine of them had won, and there was one left that belonged to Marshall Jenny and his wife, and we were talking about how we needed to win. He was the only one that hadn't won. He wasn't much horse. And they found some little race called the Ridge Hunt Cup, which I'd never even heard of, a very t- minor pointer point, not too far from here. And Marshall rode the horse himself, and it was a terrible race. I said, Marshall... <laughs> There's only one way you can get this horse beat. If you do something really stupid and go off course, or he was a rough rider, Marshall, get DQ'd. Well, <laughs> damn if he doesn't put someone through the wing going to the second fence. <laughs> but luckily they, they left him up. He won. <laughs> oh, man. The Red Chunt Cup. So if you're specializing in timber, which I wouldn't exclusively specialize in, it was where the majority of my horses really were. It's sort of pretty cool to win the Hunt Cup. Yeah. How did so getting half a day ready for the Maryland Hunt Cup? Had you, you'd obviously, I'm sure you'd seen the course a little bit, but was it a little bit of a surprise to you to go look at that and say, I'm getting a horse ready for this race? I don't know. He sort of established himself as a pretty, you know, one of the two or three best timber horses in the country at that time. And it was just a question of the fences. And Paddy was at the peak of his career at that time and a brilliant rider. And I wasn't really overly concerned because he was a hell of a jumper. Yeah, half a, half a day won the Hunt Cup in 1968, which was after Jay Trump and Mountain Dew's battles, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Jay Griswold was second on some old yeah. horse he used to ride it. But anyway, he won. That's the main thing. Double bridle on half a day yeah. and a figure eight. Wow. Because Paddy, the horse was a little keen. He wanted to be, you know, he okay. used to kind of snag him going to the fences. And he ran down to the third fence. And I have a picture of him. He basically hurdled it. He, he didn't, you know, do one of these things. He just... <laughs> He made it over anyway. How do you know a horse like that? I mean, obviously he'd done some running, but how did you know that that was going to be a timber horse of that caliber? Even you're oh, here no on idea at all. No idea. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he bought him from Pop Dixon, and he was by a son of Hyperion, I think. 
he ran in the uh, team race, I think, on the Cheshire. I think he was third. No, he won. Excuse me. He went to Essex first. And Paddy gave him a pretty chicken-hearted ride, I thought, <laughs> which is easy for me to say, being on the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the next week at Cheshire, I said, and he was, I think he was third. He thought he'd won, but there were two, I think he thought he was second, but actually was fourth because two horses were so far in front he couldn't see them. <laughs> but then he came to Cheshire, I said, as politely as I could, I said, Paddy, I think this horse is a little bit better than you think he is. You know, if you let him run properly today, I think he's got a shot to win it. And damn if he didn't. Wow. And then he went on from there, and then he went at Manor and at Radnor. And yeah. So who else? Half a day in Gatto, I guess there's. Yeah, they're certainly early horses to get Catholic the Prince. get the well, career started. Seventy three was Athenian Idol. How did, was he a he was a horse you bought as well? Yes, that was a, an amazing piece of luck too. Okay, I was well, we were stable in Saratoga, and they had the regular sale was over, and Harbour View was having a dispersal because Mr. Wilson was being incarcerated, tax evasion or something. They sold all his horses. Popeye Hatcher was managing the sale, <laughs> so I'm snooping around there one morning and. He says, you know, some of these horses are going to go pretty damn cheap. There might be some good buys in here. He said, you no, know, once he found out he was going to sell all these horses, he barely even fed them, let alone wormed them, and they looked like hell. And he said, you take them home and feed them up, you might be onto something. So with that in mind, I go over there after training the next morning of the sale. The first one, I, got, I just missed the first one in the ring by the time I finished training. And the second one, it was just leading him out of the little walking ring into the sale pavilion. I only got a very quick peek at him. And they said, he'll give me a thousand. Somebody said, put the hand up. And he'll give me two. And I said, they not dropped the hammer. Bought it for $2,000. $2,000. <laughs> wow. And then I, I, it was a van, even right from the sales. I put him on the van, and Janet was running the farm at the time. I said, how did how did that little yearling look? She said, well, he's pretty damn small, but he's kind of cute. <laughs> well, he was pretty small, but I hadn't really seen him. But I, there was something in his pedigree I liked. He traced back to a horse called Alcibiades, who was a great stayer back in the old days. And he was actually inbred to him. He's, he showed up twice in his pedigree, third and fourth generation. Or and I owned him myself, and he did well. But about his third start, he fell. He kind of over-jumped and knuckled over and the second fence down the backside of Belmont and broke a bone in the back of his knee. And he had to have a year off. And then when he came back, Pate bought half of them. I think more or less just for paying the board. There wasn't much money involved. Anyway, he went on to be the horse of the year the next year. Wow. And that had to be one of the early horses with Bill Pape, right, at that time? Yes. Yeah. The very first one, I think, was a horse called Case Dismissed. Well, no, no excuse me. How I got involved with him is Jiggs Baldwin called me up one day. He had some broken-down old timber horse for Pape, and Pape's always liked to stay at Rolling Rock. But you had to have a runner there to stay in the club, otherwise you're in the Holiday Inn downtown. I was always in the Holiday Inn downtown. <laughs> well, he liked to be in the club. He said, I heard he might have a few horses over there for sale. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. This was either the second or the third year of going over and buying horses over there. Probably the third, I think. So I said, I'll tell you, I, I don't know. This horse could be a bit borderline. He might be all right and he might not. Why don't you just lease him or run him out there in a flat race? I've been schooling him a bit. He might be all right to run over jumps. And then if if Mr. Pape likes him, he can buy him and keep him. And if he doesn't, don't worry about it. He, at least he can go out there and run in his name and colors and nothing. And uh, he went out there and ran in a flat race. I think he was third or something. I hadn't met him before, and, and you know, he, I got introduced to him out there. And he, as it, in retrospect, he's quotes of saying how he was impressed with someone being that honest, not just saying, you know, you got to buy him right now, or that's it. I kind of gave him an opportunity to back out if he wanted to, and he didn't turn out to be that much of a horse. But then he bought another horse. Well, I think we bought it together that I had had for George Strawbridge that Strawbridge didn't like, and he had got a bit of a leg on him called Case Dismissed, and he went on to do rather well. And he he placed in several stakes and won quite a few races. And then I had started a small breeding program, and 
I'd read about Bill Hancock and Mr. Phipps. <laughs> a little bit different level to <laughs> my breeding, but... <laughs> anyway. No, it was, sorry, Bill Perry. Bill Perry, okay. William, William Hagen right. Perry. They raised these horses. They flipped a coin to see who got the first one or something, and they based the price. Perry had to buy half of the whole crop, and the price of the whole crop was based on the average price of the Saratoga yearling sale. Well, I said, my horses aren't quite that caliber, but maybe we'll base it on the price of the Timonium yearling, yearling sale. Timonium yearling sale, yeah. Which at that time was... 3800 or something, the average price. So he said, okay. And after about a year or two of that, he said, you know, I'd sort of like to just start on the ground level. Why don't you put a number on what you think those mares are worth? And then I can just buy half the mares and start from the ground up. So that's how we got started together. Wow. Yeah, and obviously steeplechasing doesn't really keep statistics on these things, but you'd be the most successful American steeplechase breeder who was actually trying to breed steeplechase horses in, yes. uh, you know, in ever, I would think. Well, I mean, maybe not. Well, yes, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I know Hitchcock, but he bought, bought all this, didn't he? Yeah. Mrs. Scott bred. Mrs. Scott, yeah, she bred, she bred a bunch, but not nearly as many. Yes. And maybe they weren't. Yours have always seemed like they were destined for steeplechasing, even though they might have run a little bit on the flat. Together with Bill Pape, or on his own, Shepard has bred champion steeplechasers Marty's Anger, Flatterer, Mixed Up, and Divine Fortune. Plus, Polar Parallel, It's a Giggle, Romantic, All the Way Jose, Virginia Gold Cup winner, he's a conniver, and Maryland Hunt Cup winners, welterweight and swayo. Finding statistics can be a challenge, but it's safe to say that no breeder has had a bigger impact on American jump racing. The best was Flatterer, who turned relatively humble beginnings on Shepherd's Farm into a career for the ages, with four Eclipse Awards, a weight-carrying record, placings in two of the world's greatest jump races, and a spot in Racing's Hall of Fame. You can learn about all of that and more in part two of our interview with Jonathan Shepherd. From Tennessee to Maryland and Ascot to Cheltenham, Brown Advisory supports the hard work, dedication, and love for competition that defines the horse racing spirit. Brown Advisory has cheered from stables and fence lines since its founding in 1993 and is excited to share this passion through the sponsorship of this podcast and races across the U.S. and U.K. Visit brownadvisory.com to see how they can help you achieve your financial goals. 